Welcome to The Whole Truth, where two wholesalers help financial professionals build great practices and thrive in a rapidly changing industry. We'll bring you the stories and voices from those on the front lines of this change, and we'll have some fun along the way. This is more than a podcast. We're building a community of financial professionals who are growing, forward-thinking, and want to get better. Thanks for listening and contributing to the discussion. The views expressed herein are those of the participants and not those of Touchstone Investments. And welcome, everybody, to The Whole Truth from the Bay Area, California. I am Steve Side. And from Atlanta, Georgia, I am Kurt Dupuy. I always make fun of how you say that. Uh, I am. It's like it's the, the, the view I just got in my brain just now was, I'm Batman. I literally am at the point where I don't. I don't know how to say it appropriately. And, <laughs> and that's what I love it. And the fact I'm that so, you laugh I, now. I live writ free in your head with how to say it. I know. This. And the fact that I see you <laughs> laughing every time uh, makes it even worse. So Wonderful. announcement, we're going to have to change that intro at some point because <laughs> I, I don't know how to say it without hating myself is really what it comes down to. <laughs> well, I, I might have gone too far then. Um, so I want to talk about something a little bit before we get into our interview today. Um, and really I want to convince financial professionals that they need to pay more attention to social media. So many people are scared to dip their toes in the water. I'm going to try to build a case for why you should start thinking about it and also give you something practical that you can do about it. So are you ready for that? Let me clarify, because I do see a lot of financial professionals using it. Are you suggesting they're not using it? They're not thinking like deeply about it and they're just sort of doing it generically or they're not spending a lot of time with it. Cause I do see people on there, of course. So let, let me be clear. I'm talking about LinkedIn. Yep. And if you simply post the firm approved stuff once a month or twice a month, right. you're probably I not see seeing good results. You're, you're, you're probably, and, and you probably think, why do I need to waste any time on this? So I'm doing it, but I don't really know why I'm doing it. Yeah. Maybe it's beneficial. Maybe it's not. Yeah. I, that I, I buy it. I'm, I'm on board. So like our par process, we both like numbers. I want to start with some numbers. So sure. Um, this is, and, and by the way, this, both of these stats came from Twitter from a from a girl named at Samantha Twenty, she she runs like a digital online marketing company. Um, got really really good content, really good ideas. But so she tweeted about a Pew Research report that says, "Okay, good. I'm glad you got there because Pew, I can believe. But when you started to say it comes from Twitter from Samantha Twenty, I'm like, well, that has to be true. <laughs> uh, no, she, she's <laughs> quoting Pew Research, so I, I feel like it's yep. it's legit. Okay, it's I'm not with like you. Steve Sides Basement Statistics Company." So which Americans use social media? That's the question. Because the general idea is go to the platforms your customers are using. And a lot of people, I think, wrongly think my my clients and prospects are not on Facebook. They're not on Twitter. They're not on Snapchat. They're like, they're not on all these things. So I'm going to refute that a little bit. The number, the percentage, and you're going to guess, Side, the number of 20 to 49-year-olds that use social media, very generic question. Oh, it's got to be super high. I'm almost going to say like 90%. 20 to 49. I bet if it was 20s, it would be higher, but that 20 to 49, 81%. Yeah. I wasn't that far off. I yeah. was in the range. Okay. Yeah. What about when we go up 50 to 64 years of age? Ooh, that's a good one. So I know we've gotten to the point where, you know, people view some of the older 
social sites as sort of dinosaurs because grandma's on there. Wait, now, which right? are the older ones? Like like Facebook, like Bookface. Okay. Like yeah, don't don't people view? And by the way, I'm the I'm 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 on one social site, which is LinkedIn. So I'm like I know nothing about any of this stuff, but I sort of feel like that's the case where where the new generation of folks are gravitating to other things. Um, so I'm going to say 50%. 73%. Wow. Yeah. Right? And that's, that's a, yeah. for, for prospect, for financial professionals that you know want to be, get new life in their business with a, with a client's client base that has assets, 50 to 64 is a good chunk. Three quarters of yeah. them are, are on socials. There you go. 65 and older. What percentage are on social? Well, it's going to be higher than I than I think, and I can't guess fifty. I'm going to say sixty-five, forty-five. Okay, so okay. You, you overshot that one. But the the point is, people are on social media. Right. Okay. I want to break this down a little bit more, though. So here's another study from the Spectrum Group. So they interviewed people with twenty-five million or more in assets and asked similar questions. And I'll just tell you, this is what they found. 70% of this cohort used Facebook. 52% used YouTube. 51% used Twitter. 39% used LinkedIn. 32% used Snapchat. Hmm. And 23% used TikTok. Would you have ever guessed that twenty a quarter of the people with 25 million liquid are on TikTok, but the LinkedIn number seems a little low to me, doesn't it? Like, if tw- if does, does that strike you as low or no? Uh, no, that seems about right. I mean, link, about LinkedIn's right. got an interesting reputation because you know if you're 25 million or more, you're probably an entrepreneur. You don't probably don't care about what jobs people are getting, and you know that's yeah, good point. LinkedIn's origins point. are looking for jobs, finding jobs, updating on jobs. Right? It's it's yeah. grown to a lot more, but I think that's what a lot of people think of it yeah. as. Okay, that's fair. Okay, so to the best of your ability, and you know, as another disclaimer, we are not with compliance, so every firm is different. Check with your compliance department, but you, you should start thinking about being on social. So there's another organization called the Oxley Institute, which they're great. I'm on their email list. They do videos that are really high quality. They teach you about lighting. They have a service where they will give you a script and I'm not here to sell their, their wares, but um, it's, it seems really cool. Well, in their blog, they have a post that's titled Financial Advisors 20-Minute LinkedIn Routine. So if you think like LinkedIn is a platform, like I know my clients are on here because they are changing jobs. They're looking for jobs. They're interacting with people. If that's an ecosystem that you want to invest in, uh, it's kind of a checklist. It's it's pretty simple things that you can do every day in 10 or 20 minutes that just make it more engaging. So this is like, and so we're assuming right now that they're probably doing a lot less than this. So this is like, okay, you want to step up? Here's a way to do it. Um, and so if, if you want this blog, we'll send you the article, um, or we'll, we can go through this more in, in more detail. So reach out to us at the whole truth at touchstonefunds.com. Happy to share this and, and share some ideas, but it's such simple stuff. But I think because every platform is a little bit different, you may not know what boxes to check. So I'm going to run through this very quickly, but number one, pretty obvious, but check your messages and respond just like you would with email. If someone sends you a connection right. request, if someone sends you a message, just respond. Number two. Every day, click my network just to see activity. Who's posted something? Who who is moving around? What's what's of note? 
Three, review notifications and look for opportunities to engage. So this is a big one, looking for opportunities to engage. So it's not just posting your firm's pre-approved content, which that's fine and you, you should do that. Uh, and we'll talk about what other kind of stuff to to post as well. But liking other comments, writing in the comment section, the, the normal stuff you would do on Facebook or any other social, you should be doing that kind of stuff on the regular. Number four, connect with 25 new prospects and deploy a messaging sequence. So this is going to get a little bit into the weeds, so we're not going to go into this, but this is a really good, thoughtful way to start engaging with people. And just so you know, like this is not, hey, my name is Bob. I'm a financial professional at, at X firm. Would you like to take a meeting? You know, it, a, a softer approach to actually develop relationship over time, I think is the approach that most people recommend. L- let's put a pin in that because I wrote down a couple of things. You know, I, I wanted you to lead the way because you're way better at this stuff than I am. But I wrote down three things that I wanted to talk about as pertaining to LinkedIn. So one of, one of them is that specifically. So let's Perfect. put a pin and come back to that. Okay. Yeah. Five is sending personalized connections. So don't just hit connect, actually write a message to the person you're connecting with. Like spend 30 seconds, find out something about them, who somebody you know in comments, something they're interested in. Don't just click send without a t- personal touch. Number six, touch base with dormant connections. So people you haven't talked to in a while, make sure to reach out to them, keep front and center. Seven, find a new introduction opportunity. So in the article, they talk about how you can search your current connections for potential new contacts. Their algorithm will recommend people to connect with. Do that. Eight, stay top of mind by sharing an update. So there's the firm pre-approved stuff, which you should definitely be posting because that stuff is valuable. But you know, like if you hire a new assistant, if you get a new office space, heck, if you get a new desk chair, people, it's social. People want to interact. Like they want to know what's going on. You know, putting up a wreath on the front of your sign. Like People care about this stuff. You'll probably find that those types of posts are going to get 10, 20 times more interactions than the pre-approved firm totally stuff. Totally agree. Yeah. So, the personal stuff I just see get so much more responses than anything business related at all. Cause, cause it is social and, and and people, people forget that, especially with LinkedIn. I think they, they think it's a business site and that, yeah, you can conduct business. You can find prospects. You, you can even connect with existing clients through it, but it's a social website at the end of the day. Right. Uh, nine, make a handful of meaningful comments on your connections posts, not just like good job exclamation point. And then last but not least, number 10, see who's viewed your profile. You can actually turn that off so that, you know, if you're going to somebody's profile, they can't see when you've looked, uh, but most people don't. So if they click on your profile, you can see. So definitely something to check out because you might be able to see clients or prospects that that are looking at your page. So uh, if you're interested in this list, I see this as a checklist. If you just kind of want to start flexing your LinkedIn muscles this is a great place to start. And I've, I've used this with a number of clients and talking about how, how to just get more engagement on socials. Yeah. I, I think that's a great thing. You know, you were telling me that you've been working with people on this that are just like, Hey, I'm doing social media. I don't even know why I'm doing it. And so you're just sort of helping them ramp it up because you know, like anything else, more time, more dedication and probably get you results. And so if you're going to do something, do it right. And so um, I would love to start working with some of my folks on there. Like let's, Let's really see if we can get something out of it because time is too valuable to waste. There were three things that I wrote down. Some of this were things that are popping in my mind. The other was reflecting back on the on the Pollard conversation we had around this. 
And so the th- three things I wrote down was one was stats. And this was, this was James Pollard who talked about it. Like knowing exactly the stats that you want to hit and where you are relative to that, like what's your connection rate, what's your acceptance rate, what's your close rate. And so if you, it, it, are you getting and hitting the threshold you want, like anything else and having the stats is going to make you better about it. Um, the second one was what I asked you to put a pin in, which was like, how to do this in a way that's not super generic. I've not had too many people approach me in a way that even felt close to natural. And I think I would be receptive if they did, you know, I really do. If I was at a networking event in person, right? how would I go about approaching people? How would I start conversations and then sort of approach it that way, as opposed to the way most people do it? I think there's there's big differentiation there, you know? Well, let me use a non-industry example. A guy on LinkedIn who owns and runs a video marketing, video content company. So he helps businesses create video content, but then helps them plug it into their business. He reached out very casual, explained his value proposition. And I was like, I'm interested in playing with video a little bit. I'll reach out. We got on a 30 minute zoom, had a great chat. And at the end of it decided this probably isn't going to be a good fit. Me as a wholesaler, you working directly with business owners, it's just not going to work. But he had great stuff, great ideas, great, very thoughtful. So we used the platform to connect in a digital way and then just saw that, hey, we've got enough to warrant a conversation. So we had digital coffee. We, we had the equivalent of a digital cup of coffee together. Yeah. And it's like, wow, this is a really good exchange of ideas. That's a great use of the platform, in my opinion. So few people are, are getting that right. And the other one was a question mark. I, I think everyone knows this, but you tell me, does everyone know to follow and connect with their own clients on there? Does everyone know that? They do not, because that's one of the one of the things that, that we talk about. Because yeah. this... Again, back to the social part of social media, you know, so when you're posting pictures of your new chair or the decorations around the holidays or what, you want clients to see that, not just prospects. And then the more engagement you get with your existing clients, the more likely you are that prospects are going to see that like, wow, like they seem to have a really good connection. And yeah, that's, that's a no brainer. Connect with clients. Talk about referrals and things like that. Connect with all your clients. Do it. You know, see what they're involved with. Yeah. Maybe you see your clients are involved in certain, um, I don't know, groups that then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I've got five clients in this group. You know, why am I not involved with it? I, anyway. I've been doing some some research on referrals, how people get them, how to create an environment for them. But one of the one of the key takeaways is you have to create an environment where people want to recommend you. So if you are interacting with clients and a prospect sees that when the client and the prospect that know each other are out in public and they're grabbing dinners like, oh yeah, I saw your financial professional. Like they posted this, I, it's a cat video. I don't, I don't know, but something memorable, boom, segue to start talking about, yeah, they're actually really great at what they do they're as great, well. Yeah. So you're just helping yeah. create that environment of being referable. Yeah. And you can learn more about your clients. Yeah. Hey, I saw you were doing this, you know, when you're thinking about that unique client touch point, yeah. right? I mean, stuff they'll never share with you in a review meeting. Exactly right. So anyways, no, I thought this was good, Kurt, and and we'll do more on this. I think really what we've done here is started the conversation and we'll spend some more time, you know, sort of building expertise around LinkedIn and helping you guys because I know uh, it's a topic that uh, that matters to everyone uh, who who wants to grow. So we're going to jump into our interview with Tom Singler. We love to have people on the show that work with and that are in front of 
you know, hundreds, if not thousands of financial professionals and sort of suck out the wisdom from that. Like, what did you learn? Tom's a member of our investment specialist group. He's been with uh, the firm for a really long time, but he does a lot of work with that practice analysis report that we always talk about. He's worked with hundreds, if not thousands of financial professionals. So we're like, hey, come on and tell us what you learned, the good, the bad, the stuff we're not even thinking about. Um, and it was a great, great discussion. We think you'll enjoy it. We'll be right back with our interview with Tom Singler. This is the whole truth. Stick with us. All right. Welcome, everybody. We are joined by our very, very good friend, Tom Singler. How are you, man? I'm doing Thanks well. Thanks for joining. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Tom's like kind of a legend at this point at our firm. Uh, he's He's been uh, a big part of our PAR process, our practice management process. Um, most people, at least who have done work with me, know him pretty darn well. So we're excited to have him on. Um, the backstory is he's one of those rare people that has interacted with financial professionals across the country. We're talking hundreds of thousands of reps. Uh, diving deep into their books. And we're going to talk to him a little bit about that today. Is that fair, Tom? It, it made it sound like you said hundreds of thousands, but it may be hundreds or thousands. Hundreds or thousands. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. I heard the same thing, Singler. Yeah. Thousands is fair. So you're saying I'm overdoing it. I just don't want to be hyperbolic right off the bat. That's fair. I was also talking to Kurt before we hopped on here, Tom. You're also the guy that I go to when I'm about to make some weird purchase that no one I know would have done research on that. Like I, I just bought a new chair for my office because the old one squeaked and it was ruining the podcast and making our engineers go crazy. I'm hoping that we can, we're going to get in today about like golf clubs and what, what Ping's new line is and you know, what, what clubs you need from Ping's oh. lineup, what you don't need. They're not a sponsor, but maybe they will be. But if anybody's going to have that kind of Intel, Singler's the guy. I have you both now wearing suit supply suits when you when you suit yeah. up and go back to the office. I might own one or two of That's those. Right. Yeah, and I, I was telling Kurt, I was like, he's like, what kind of chairs? And I picked off to Amazon. I said, but Tom, he'd tell you to buy the office chair XL four thousand with yeah. reclining speakers and. Well, think how much time you spend in your chair every day. <laughs> you hear this? <laughs> so singular. <laughs> Dude, you need to be in like advertising. What is the word? Because I'm not, I, this is out of my, is it influencer? Is Tom an influencer? I was I was born a little bit too too early to be an IG influencer, but I think that is my true calling. I'm actually thinking about like a new segment where you just kind of cover something. Like Tom, tell us what the best new SUVs are for 2021. And Tom, tell us- Singular you know, style. You get, yeah, we had that conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's funny. Kurt and I are both laughing and he's like, this is deadly serious. I mean, yeah, exactly. Uh, that's awesome. Well, we'll have to talk about that because I think maybe what, maybe what we'll do is uh, is we'll ask our community topics and say, what do you want research? Tom will do we'll it. We'll have Tom kind of run off and do that. Tom's but. pick of the week, you know, SUVs, Tom's office chairs, suits, golf clubs, you tennis rackets. The main reason we're having Tom on is we're going to tap into that big brain of his. You got top five things that you found from working with advisors. Top five takeaways from successful teams through the practice analysis review partnerships over the last seven years now. Okay. And is there, are they in any particular order? Um, I, I tried to make them go in order. All right. Well, let's just jump right into them. We'll take it one at a time. Yeah. Well, I'm more curious too, because you mentioned that my top five, you maybe didn't expect. So you read these and then at the end, I'll, I'll comment to why I didn't expect these top five. So um, number one, I think is, is a big one just right off the bat. Um, the biggest thing you need to have is the mental outlook that a financial advisor role 
it is not a job. It is a lifestyle. Um, if you set out every day to clock in at eight and, and clock out at five and leave your job behind at the, at the desk, um, that mentality does not lead to success down the road. Um, it is a it is a lifestyle as a financial advisor. It is not a not a job. A financial advisor, their their clients, their goals never stop. Right? Maybe they want to buy a beach house and you're on vacation. You can't just all of a sudden ignore their call for two weeks. At some point, I think you you become large enough where you have the CSAs in place, you have your assistants, you have a team around you that can can cater to those needs as well. But many people think that they're going to have that day one and they don't actually want to work to get there. And and is this from the observation that I've worked with all these financial professionals and the ones that I see doing well approach it that way and the ones that I see are not doing well or not approaching it that way? Is that kind of how you drew this conclusion? I was talking about being surprised. This is not something that's on our dashboard or anything like that. So that's why I was surprised. It was sort of outside of the observations that I thought you would have said. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of it too has to do with the mentality now of what we would call a modern wealth practice versus a a broker or brokerage. If you're coming in at nine and you're leaving at four, when the market closes, you're very transactional. You're not focused on any kind of goals-based investing. You're not focused on building relationships with with your clients. You're there to simply take orders. And the teams that want to see sustainable growth over time and continue to climb within the office or complex rankings and become more efficient and and a sustainable business as a team or FA, they don't have that that time clock mentality. But if if you don't want to work 24 hours a day, you can build that in and still be a good advisor by limiting the number of clients that you have, having the support staff to handle, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Is that fair to say too? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I think okay. um, a, a piece of that too is, you know, some of the other points I have where, you know, the bottom end of the book is is most likely killing most advisors because they're, they're working too much and focus too much on those people that don't contribute to the overall success of the business. But two was uh, quantify your worth and formulate a proper value proposition. Most, I would say almost every advisor I sit down with has no idea how much your time is worth. Um, and we we calculate that for them on the dashboard and it's it's eye-opening to a lot of people. They don't think their time is worth what it's actually worth. And we break down how much they're generating in terms of revenue on the on an annual basis versus uh, we do market hour, which is, you know, 1,625 hours. Um, the other way to do it is an average 40-hour work week, oftentimes more than half that are paying them less than their hourly rate on an annual basis. So make sure we understand how much your time is worth and where you're focusing that time and attention. Are you actually being properly compensated for that as opposed to just, you know, spinning your wheels with some people that are more so a customer than they are a client. They don't necessarily take your advice. They don't have any long-term growth potential. This was about two years ago. We started introducing this kind of revenue by market hour into the dashboard, right? Yeah. So we partnered with a new firm in the fall of 18 and they actually populated it internally. Um, so then we that and spread it across all seven of our partner firms now that we're doing with. And really, if you can give us a, a revenue number, we could give it to any advisor, no matter where they're at. But it has really opened a lot of eyes. You would drive down the street to a mechanic. That mechanic's going to tell you right off the bat, hey, you know, I'm going to charge you X for just my hours to work in the car. Or if you go to a lawyer, you know, say you're getting divorced or whatever it is, you need a lawyer, uh, they're going to charge you, hey, you know, my retainer is X per hour. No one walks into a financial advisor and the financial advisor says, 
okay, I'm going to charge you X per hour because that's what that's what I get for my my wealth management plan. They may charge you X for a plan, but there's no hourly retainer or rate. So it's just a, it's a mentality that hasn't really creeped in yet to the financial industry. But when you break it down by hour and then realize your clients and your segmentations and what people are actually generating, um, it can be quite eye-opening. I remember kind of like my eyes widening when we started introducing this idea because it's not because the number matters because the number doesn't matter. What matters is changing behavior. And when suddenly you're, you're going from a construct that just says, oh, well, yeah, I'd like to do these things. I don't know how much time they'd actually take. And I don't really have no idea how much my time is worth. When you can show what your time is worth, it really makes people think more critically, which is the behavioral change about where am I investing in marketing? How much time can I legitimately spend with these people? Yeah, I think too, to that point, the, the second piece of my number two was you know a proper value proposition, which um, we've helped a lot of teams formulate that. A lot of teams we start off with just say, oh, I, I focus on high net worth clients. First of all, they've heard that from 17 different advisors as they, they shop around. But, you know, you're not telling me anything. So think about, you know, what you actually offer. You know, maybe it's a 24-hour resolution guarantee or, you know, four-hour callback time or something very specific like that. Or maybe you have a niche within that the firm that he's working with and you know the benefits plan inside and out. You have to really have a specific value prop as to why that individual needs to work with you and you can meet their needs going forward. Excellent. Good one. All right. Item three. All right. Item three was chances are you have too many clients. You absolutely need client segmentation and a proactive service model to have sustainable growth. These are two different things, although I would say you can't have one without the other, really. Or if you have one without the other, they're both useless. And so what we need to do first is really say, you know, how much time do you have in your day? How many clients can you actually service for that time? And then from there, understand, okay, what does my book look like today? And do I need to get rid of anybody to meet those parameters that I just established? Um, do I have room for growth? Do I not need to hire another team member or maybe another assistant or a junior FA? Um, but how do we make this work? And then from there, we can back into how many segments do I have in my book? Um, we more often than not run into teams and FAs. And again, they can be very successful, um, but they can't tell you the difference between an A client and a C client other than one maybe has 2 million and one has 100,000. There's a lot of times where that $100,000 client pays them more than the $2 million client, but simply because assets the two million is an A, and the one hundred thousand is a C, or, or however gold, silver, bronze. So um, there's a lot more factors that need to go into client segmentation than just assets or revenue. Um, do you like working with them? Do they give you referrals? Are they a center of influence? Things of that nature. Uh, but from there, once we have those segmentations, what do they actually get for being in that segment? So uh, that's been a huge game changer we introduced in the last twelve months, I would say. Um, just allowing you to calculate the segmentation and then also quantifying what that service model would, would look like in terms of real hours. I'm curious about how you talk about the bottom of the book. You made the comment there. Do you have too many clients? What is an hour of your time worth? The question that I have for you is, what are you seeing teams actually do about that other than the ones that are ignoring it? One is, do you see teams getting rid of clients, adding staff, spending time trying to get more out of that bottom book, all of the above? 
what's the solution that set that you're seeing? Yeah. So the answer is all the above. And the other answer is success rates vary greatly by team and FA. Um, and it's not always the bottom of the book. And again, don't think of this just as asset revenue. Um, a lot of teams look at, you know, the overall client profile and maybe they have $3 million, but they're, they're just sitting in individual stocks. They're not adding any value in terms of revenue to the team. They call in and get, you know, quotes every once in a while for their individual stocks. Would you rather have them on a go forward basis or someone who's maybe a 27 year old doctor with 25 grand that, you know, in the long run is going to continue to grow that, that account. So we're seeing more clients with larger asset bases being exiled out of the book than just the, the bottom end based on simply assets. Uh, or the senior FA just doesn't want to deal with it anymore. And, and so he can, he can kick it off for the junior and let them try to be build that relationship, become more profitable. There's a lot of different ways to do it. Some firms have like a call center you can kick them to as well. Um, so, you know, that's always an option. Roll into number four, because this, the way you phrase it, at least, I think is my favorite one on this list. Number four is stop treating the bottom of the book like a lottery ticket. And when we work with teams and FAs, they have this mentality that they can't part ways with any relationship because you never know who's going to win the lottery. And um, there's always somebody in the office that will say, oh, well, Joe down the, down the hallway, he had a client with his mom died and gave him 25 million bucks. Actually, I was in a, in an office, I think we were in St. Louis, and somebody had told us a story like that. And we actually met with uh, Joe down the hallway. His name wasn't really Joe. And we asked about that. He's like, oh, that's just a story that's been made up for 20 years. It's not really true. <laughs> and um, just to clarify, when we look at a bottom bucket, we, we the cutoff is 4% of assets and 4% of, uh, of revenue. So by definition, the bottom bucket does not eclipse either 4% of assets or revenue. Another way to say that is you could eliminate the bucket and still make 96% of your current revenue. So when you look at what's going on in those accounts, and this gets into number five, is you don't spend enough time with them on an annual basis. Um, it just doesn't make sense uh, you know, in today's environment. Um, so really examining who is in your business as a client, who is a customer, and who do you want to continue that relationship with going forward, uh, I think is more important now than ever. So wait, then what was number five? So number five is, and it was like, oh, I know exactly what I own. And, and to be fair, they know what they own in their models. Everyone has a, a buy list that's 35 or 40 mutual funds, ETFs, and they have their individual stocks. Um, but when we look at the, the broad book of, of business and the holdings they have, on average, the typical FA has 370 mutual funds and ETFs. And when I say mutual funds, that's where we roll up share classes. So when you think about that on a, on a ticker basis, that 370 all of, all of a sudden becomes 450 or 500. And that's across, you know, brokerage advisory. So orphan fund, where you only have one share class variation of strategy and only one client owns it across the book. Those are heavily concentrated to the tune of greater than 50% within that bottom 4% bucket. That was a great top five. So what wasn't on my list that you thought would be there? No, you know, you know, my 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 thought was that you were going to pull things that were directly off the dashboard, and you did some of that, like with orphan funds, and you did that with segmentation, where I didn't think you'd go 
things like lifestyle practices, value propositions like yeah. value proposition. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I, I didn't know that you were going to go there, which is awesome there. I mean, I, again, the, the value of having you on is, is the fact that you've interacted with all these different teams. And I'm like, I wonder where he's going to go. And a couple of them surprised me. That's all. Yeah. I think, I think the things that I've learned over time is you can quantify things and I can get a pretty good idea from those is what potential that team or FA has to move the needle. Um, but you don't really know until you meet the advisor or the team and, and hear their thoughts on the business as to whether or not they kind of have the wherewithal or the mentality to actually take it seriously and move the needle themselves. We can give you everything you need to, to pick up the phone and call the, call the, the client, but we can't call the client for you. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. Well, thanks to our great friend, Tom Singler. I'm sure you'll hear him again. We might even have his own segment. We'll have to think of a fun name for it. Um, Kurt always has good names, so we'll be okay with that. But uh, we'll be right back. This is The Whole Truth. Stick with us. And welcome back to The Whole Truth. Uh, and welcome to our Costanza Corner, where we like to end the show on a high note. Steve, what you got for us today? I was just telling Kirk before we started recording, we should probably be donating to something called the Good News Network because I've gotten so many of my positive Costanza Corner from that website. They do an awesome Ditto. job. And uh, basically, I, this is the one that really kind of had me chuckling a little bit this week was it was an article about 10 myths that we should give up. So things that everyone thinks are true, but are really not true. And I won't okay. go through all 10, but can I give you a uh, a couple of them just for, for fun? Sure. You know where my brain immediately goes is our conversation <laughs> with Dr. Crosby, where he's like, what, what is something that you know to be true that your kids in their generation will completely myth Completely bust? like, and yeah, I, yeah, I, I, love I live that. every day in fear. Like, what am I thinking about that's completely wrong? So you're probably about to tell me a couple. So I'm- All right. So there's 10 of them here. Let me give you, uh, uh, first of all, this one is great. You should urinate on it if someone gets stung by a jellyfish. Uh, so you know when you get stung by a jellyfish, wait, everyone's peeing on each other? Not true at all. There's absolutely <laughs> no science. The Mayo Clinic says there is no scientific basis for this. I was laughing because I'm like, who made this up? Like, is that? Oh, my. Uh, is that great? Or you, what? you set a really good high bar with that one. I hope the rest are as good as that Not one. Of them are gonna, the rest of them aren't going to be this funny. I thought that was great. This one I thought was interesting as a dog owner. Have you ever heard that like dogs can only see in black and white? That's not true at all. They could actually see in colors. I don't think that was a, a myth that needed busting for me. All right. If you touch a baby bird with your bare hands, its mother will reject it. This oh. is not... This is not a true true statement. Really? Yes. No, I'm not kidding you. Last week, my neighbor who had been fostering some, like she has a little bird's nest. All, all the little chicks like flew away. She took the nest out. There was one egg on there. And my three-year-old didn't. I was like, oh, this is an egg. I should squeeze this. Squeeze it, got all over her and you know was crying, whatever. But I use that as a lesson to say, if you ever see an egg or a baby bird, don't, I, I said this exact same thing and you're telling me I'm lying to her? Well, she probably shouldn't touch it anyway. So the outcome is right, right? Because you shouldn't really <laughs> But the reasoning be, is flawed. <laughs> the reasoning is flawed. I thought that was interesting because I thought that was true. Okay, here's here's a good one. That's Seinfeld related. You oh, like this. I love it. 
Uh, shaving your hair makes it grow back thicker. You remember that one when Kramer's like, if you start shaving your chest, that thing with Jerry, uh-huh. and he's like, look at it. Look. But actually, there's no scientific basis for that at all. Oh, good. So um, I can go back to shaving my chest. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So you can you can get back to it. Um, I'll just throw one more out there. This one isn't funny or anything, but I thought it was kind of interesting because these have been great wife, so far. <laughs> yeah. Th- is this not uplifting? Um, the, the, the last one was uh, that I'll share is, Cracking your knuckles too much will cause arthritis. Uh, cracking your knuckles does no harm at all to our joints and does not lead to arthritis. So don't do that. It creeps me out when people crack their. Oh no! Don't do it. Don't do it. I hate that sound. Oh my god! Please stop. <laughs> That's so good to know because I can't stop cracking my knuckles. But I just thought, yo, you know, I'm going to lose dexterity by the time I'm 50. But that's the price I pay. So thank you for yeah. alleviating that concern. Those are some really good ones in there. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time. See y'all. You can find The Whole Truth and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. And for more episodes of The Whole Truth, go to www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. That's touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth, all one word. Please note that this content was created as of the specific date indicated and reflects views as of that date. It will be kept solely for historical purposes and opinions may change without notice in reacting to shifting economic, market, business, and other conditions. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer and member FINRA and SIPC. 